another impactful night of the Impact Education Leadership. This is episode 183. I'm your host, ID34. I just drove third. Tonight's panelists are Dr. Larry Davis, Dona Bryan, Buddy Thornton, and Nina Taylor. Loving Miss Nina Taylor, please hello to the people. Hello, everyone. So happy to be back. So glad to have you back. And Miss Dona Bryan, please say hello to the people. Good evening, one and all. Welcome back. And we got him back again, y'all. That's right. Buddy Thornton, Puzzles Change Agent Pro. Please say hello again to the people, sir. It's always a pleasure to be invited here, and I love my panel mate very dearly, and it is really fantastic to be on with all of you. Awesome. And Dr. Larry Davis, please say hello again to the people, sir. Hello, hello to the, the listeners out there. You know that when adults get together and talk and listen objectively, our children are the ones who benefit. So let's make sure it's a benefit to our children tonight. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, tonight's topic is the school parents' bill of rights. The school parents' bill of rights. About two years ago, the House of Representatives passed the uh, Parents' Bill of Rights Act. The I believe it's the 117th Congress. That that act that was being passed, it basically said we're going to give parents rights to make decisions. Uh, without shoving uh, down um, different things, mandates that they have to do down their throats. But I want to go around the panel real quick. The panel is open. What was your thoughts when you got the topic for the night? The school parents' bill of rights. Who wants to go first? Well, I thought, oh boy, um, I have uh, about six more weeks before I have to report to school. And I was trying not to think about anything of this nature, basically. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Ms. Brian, what was your thoughts when you first got the well, top for the night? My thoughts would be, how am I going to help my parents? Because that's my concern. How am I going to help my parents? Help my students? We have parents that are, you can pass all the bills you want to pass, but they're not involved. That's going to be the change that must be made. The mindset of these parents to get on board to help their children. Oh, that was good. That was good. Who's next? Who's next? What was your thoughts? What thoughts came to your mind first? Dr. Larry Davis, when you got this topic for tonight. It, it always amazes me that we have Bill of Rights. Rights are God-given. How are we voting for something that we should have that is an inalienable gift? Why are we giving voting for rights, giving rights? They're, our, they're ours by nature. We should spend our funding on something that's going to support that parent who doesn't know they have these rights. Oh, that's good. Last but not least, mm -hmm. certainly, the one and only Buddy Thornton, Process of Change Pro. Please, what's your thoughts, sir? I have to uh, recognize Larry's uh, very direct approach. There is no reason to have to define rights in the modern era. The number one thing that has always been expressed to me from the time I was born in the early 50s all the way to today is that parents always had a say in their children's education. There is no doubt they have a say in their children's education. And teachers know for a fact that they are actually learning environment facilitators. If a child doesn't come to school prepared to learn, a teacher's hands are tied. So the number one thing a teacher has to recognize is that a parent is responsible to have their child at the school, on campus, ready to learn and motivated to do so. Teachers rarely can overstep that boundary because the parents have that control, the motivation control, and it has always been in the hands of the parents. So why are we talking about a Bill of Rights when it should just be, let's give our children the gift of an education? 
Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Uh, tonight's going to be good. Please share this podcast with as many people as you can because it's going to be, I'm telling you, good, good, good. Campbell Soup, good. Let's talk about the Bill of Rights, the actual Bill of Rights that started the the independence, the Declaration of Independence, which kicked off the American Revolution, off of those ten grievances, those those ten rights, those ten inalienable rights that were due the citizens of America, like the First Amendment, which I call the freedoms, and then you had the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, and then you had the Third Amendment that said, hey, you can't let a military soldier come in in my quarters or come in my house and stay with me and I, we have to take care of them. And then the Fourth Amendment, you can't just break into my house without a warrant. You can't search my car without a warrant. And, and that unreasonable search and seizure is, is the Fourth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment is, is the right to just be quiet. <laughs> I, I wish, you know, some politicians would practice that right. I'm not gonna name any names, but just the the right to just be quiet, remain silent, and then the the Sixth Amendment is that the right to a speedy trial. The Seventh Amendment is the the right to be um, go to trial amongst peers, and in the Eighth Amendment, uh, not to set my bill so high that I can't can't pay it. And then, matter of fact, as I'm being uh, in, you know in prison, you can't treat me any kind of way, cruel and unusual punishment. And then the Ninth Amendment states that listing specific rights in the Constitution does not mean that people do not have other rights that have not been spelled out. But then the Tenth Amendment, this is the one that brings us to the discussion tonight. The federal government only has those powers delegated in the Constitution. And if it's not listed, it belongs to the states to make those decisions for the people. Now, parents have rights, too. We hear about all these government officials. We know our kids, our students have rights. We've identified that. But what about our parents? They propose many things in education, like parent universities. Parent universities are when parents get together and they, they form these groups, they, they form these entities, and they give people job descriptions on what to do that's sitting in these parent universities. And they go and they get those necessary resources. Uh, they put those lists together for those resources and they give it to the principals, they give it to donors, they give it to uh, business owners outside of the school, just inside that community to help our scholars, to help our school campuses. And they do it each year. And then they do a handover, they give it to the next group that's coming in. And so it's cyclical. And it becomes successful if implemented correctly. And so to successfully implement the Parents' Bill of Rights, an action plan must be shown to the people, a blueprint must be shown to the people on how to navigate it. We're gonna talk about this tonight. We're gonna talk about how to design a learning experience that's not only high, that not only gives high expectations for our, our students, but also gives those high expectations to our, our parents, giving our parents a job, giving our parents ownership. And with that being said, I wanna open up the panel with this question, how important, because we hear all the time, scholar ownership is important. We hear all the time, student ownership is important. But how important is parent ownership when it relates to school activities, school involvement, and we're not just talking about extracurricular activities either. The panel's open. Who wants to take that? How can we get parents ownership? I believe that you have to make them be accountable to what they signed up for when they decided to have children. In my books, uh, I state unequivocally that a parent only has one job in this world, and that is to create a fully functional adult who can benefit society, which will allow them to benefit themselves. And when parents don't take ownership of that responsibility, regardless of the context, including education, it is on the parent to look in the mirror and understand they have failed their children. We can get parents on board 
if we can get them to accept that way back when they decided to have children, they signed up for this entire laundry list of things that has to lead to creating a fully functional peer who is going to be like them, but because of them. And it's their responsibility. They can't lay it off on teachers, on congressmen, on legislators, on governors. They can't lay it off on anybody else. It's their responsibility. Oh, that was good. That was fabulous. Who's next? Who's next? Well, let me say this. I, I agree. It is a parent's responsibility to nurture that child, grow that child, and to, and teach that child in a way that they're going to be successful and productive in society. But it's really difficult for a parent to understand what their role is in a school district when the role changes from building to building, district to district, leader to leader. It's confusing to a parent. And in most cases, for low socioeconomic parents, the rules are stacked against them. They're put together to keep those parents out of the school, to keep those parents out of the, the school board meetings, to keep those parents. Think about it. We hold uh, parent-teacher conferences at times that most time our minority parents are at work. If the system is not predicated on them being successfully or them successfully partnering with the school. So we need to do better at a school system and understand that the reason that school exists is to educate children. And the reason that that child is there is because that parent had them. So if that parent and that child didn't exist, that school wouldn't either. So we have to do better as a school system as well. You know, um, I just had this conversation with, um, uh, I, I transferred to a different school that I was at last year. And one of the things that I constantly stressed to that principal was I want to be deeply involved with the parent. I mean, I send test scores home. I take pictures of stuff that we're doing. They're aware of every grade that their child did. They're aware of everything. And I was telling them that I noticed that the kids whose parents are deeply involved with them, with the school, who contact me all the time about any little thing. I don't care. I said, you have my phone number. You can call me at home. I don't care if it's midnight or something's burning on your chest. Call me. You know, those are the kids who excel much better. The ones whose parents are deeply involved with the school. They show up to parent-teacher conference. We had them in the daytime and we had them at night because that's what I said. Everybody's at work. The ones who work, they're at work and they can't be here during the day. So we need to have one day for the daytime and one evening so that those other parents will have the opportunity to come in. Out of my 25 kids, I only had eight parents that even showed up in both days. Both days. So that tells me, and the ones who did count, the ones who are deeply involved, who so keep me involved with everything that's going on at home, I keep them involved with everything that's going on at school. Their kids are the ones who are moving forward a lot faster than the rest. I said, we have to work together. This is the only way he or she is going to be successful if you and I are working together. Well, let me say this from what I heard so far. We're talking about what I'm hearing is there's a misalignment. There's a misalignment to school culture. There's a misalignment to campus vision. And I feel like we need to talk about giving those parents a, a personal vision and find out and doing the research and collecting the data to see what those parents' personal visions are and then bringing it in the mix, mixing those those visions that these parents have, these aspirations that the parents are having, and then mix it in with the different sites, with the different school campuses, and and bring it into the school culture, bring it into the school vision, you know. But before we go into that, let me go to Larry Davis, Dr. Larry Davis. <laughs> I'm coming to you. What have you been up to, sir? It's been a while since you've been on the podcast. What you got going on, sir? Well, you know, I've been working on my uh, seventh book. This one's called uh, A Man, A Father, A Husband. It's a, a Christian fiction book, but it's about the, a man's role in each of those phases of his life through the biblical definitions. And uh, right now, I'm actually in Austin at the Texas Association of Alternative Educators Conference. I'll be presenting tomorrow on working with our 4D students and uh, instructional strategies to reduce distance problems in our classroom. So that's what I'll be doing tomorrow. 
Oh, I'm I'm not shocked. You know, I'm not shocked. When you sought after, people are gonna be bringing you in to speak here and just drop those gems, drop those gems like like you're gonna do tonight, like you've already done. I want to ask you a question really quick, and I want I want we want to walk with you, um, and we want you to take your time as you give us this response. But my question for you is, based off everything we've went through already and talked about, how do you design? learning experiences that meet the needs of those rural and urban low socioeconomic schools how do you do it that's the question so I'm going to give you the long I'm going to give you the short and the long the short is we need to put God back in our schools right away so now with that being said how is it possible that we can send, put men on the moon, send men to space, but we can't adequately staff, fund, and equip our schools? I know somebody's probably thinking, the person who put the man on the moon isn't the same person funding our schools. You're, you're correct. However, that tax dollar is the same. So how are we, and the only reason we send people to the moon is for space militarization. We're trying to get a military advantage through space. Here's the thing. If we spent more money on our students, we would have a strategic advantage over the entire world. If one third of the men and women in prison had been, had we invested in them and allowed them to graduate and go to college or trade school, how much further along would our country be? How much further along would our communities be? Let's put this in perspective. There are 13 states in in this country who receive less than $10,000 per child a year for school. Buddies in Arizona. Arizona, they receive not $8,935 per student, but they spend $25,000 a year per inmate. Texas spends $9,600 a year for students, but we spend $22,000 per inmate. Vermont spends roughly $9,300 per student but they spend $57,000 per inmate. So you tell me, if we say we put our money where our mouth is, it sounds like we're putting our money in privatized institutions, prison systems. So maybe, just maybe, we should put the money where our children are and stop turning a blind eye to the communities they live in, the zip codes they live in, right? The impoverished neighborhoods and impoverished systems that we have. If we can spend $57,000 for one person to be in prison, you mean to tell me we can't come up with a job program to better our communities, our parents, get our parents more involved in our schools, more educated with our schools, and then invest in our kids? That's how we do it. So if you ask me how do we do it, it starts with caring, caring about kids and not money. Wow. You know, funding is important. Funding is important in China. In China. Let me use China because they seem to be in the press a lot right now. China sends the best of the best of their students to school because they do an evaluation, they look at the test scores, and they ask they ask the kids, they ask the scholars, they ask the students, hey, what do you want to do? We have that set in place as well. I think they call it what, CCMR? What's that, Career College Military Readiness, Dr. Davis? We have that set in place, but like you said, are we are we utilizing are we you i know the panel all right let me open up the panel are we utilizing what we already have set in place that's the question the panel's open miss brown i know you you're waiting to say something but um whoever wants to take it first are we utilizing the resources that we have right now on the even playing field no we're not the answer is no we're not because First, our parents do not understand that we have these things in place. We have to, as Dr. Davis said a few minutes ago, we have to educate these parents. We have to teach our parents how to navigate the system, how to advocate for their students, how to advocate for their scholars. We have to change their hearts. So you have a child, it does not mean that you love that child. You have to have a love for that child. 
So we have to change their hearts about educating that child. One of the things we also have to do with the dollars that we have is change that parent mindset. What was the experience they themselves had at school? And that is coming over into their children's lives. And that is hurting their involvement with their child and that child's education. We need to go back to school for educating them. We need to do much more than holding them responsible. Yes, you're responsible. But how are you responsible? Your performance has to speak for itself. You, the parent, we need, instead of parent conference night, we have one parent conference night each semester. And at our school, the middle school where I was at, we had one in the morning and one in the evening because we understood that there were two different types of parents. The mothers who were home during the day could come in the morning. The father who was gone to work would come in the evening. Was that really publicized to have the parents understand that? We need to educate them as far as what is available for them to reach their children. The, the one of go ahead no I was, I was just saying the panel is still open Ms. Brian before you leave uh, let me ask you another question are, 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 we know that there are, are teacher unions there, there are teacher unions out there and this may sound silly but are there parent unions as well yes we have PTA we have PTSA oh yes we have them they exist and the school community liaison is over that but again how many parents are aware of these things how many parents come to these meetings how many parents are even calling the school to find out what is available for me to help my child you call them and they act all surprised they don't know what is going on. You're just calling to inform them about a meeting or a PTA meeting or a PTSO meeting or because you want them there, but they have never heard of this. So therefore, some, we have to, we're, we've gone to Zoom, okay? Let's use Zoom a little wider, spread the net wider because each student would have their own computer at home they have their own laptop or their own chromebook at home let the child know when you go home you share your chromebook you share your laptop with your parents click on to such and such an evening we're having this meeting for pta or ptso or whatever because we want to educate the parents. Make these meetings bilingual. You cannot have them in one language. You must have somebody there, and I can vouch for Dallas ISD. I know we generally have them whenever we have these big meetings for parents. There's somebody there for Spanish, for Vietnamese, for English, you name it. We have a variety of languages. Even some of the African languages that came in, because at Conrad, we have over six to seven languages. We have people there, but are the parents aware of these meetings? We need to spread the net wider to involve them. Hey, Dr. Drone. 
Absolutely. Yes, sir. One of the, the listeners just texted me and said, you know, quoted from the Bible, out of lack of knowledge, my people perish. Right? That's living proof of what we're talking about. But Absolutely. In response to the PTA, PTO, PTSA, those organizations have transcended to be more of a fundraising organization than parent uh, partnership organizations. Schools go to the PTA, the PTO, and ask, can you raise money for graduation? Can you raise money for this? So those organizations have become more, what can they do to help the school raise money and finance than advocating for parents? Let me ask a question. Uh, let, let me go to Miss Brian. Let me, let me, because this is perfect. I'm, this, this. I'm, going, I'm going to answer. I'm going to piggyback on what you just said. Okay, come on. <laughs> at the middle school that I was at, no, we did not ask the PTO to raise funds for anything. Maybe at the high school, that has changed. I don't know. I've not been at the middle elementary school so I don't know what they're raising money is for but I know at our middle school we tried to get the parents involved in knowing how to read for example the report cards because some of our parents were coming from countries where that number lettering was totally different from the letter of the alphabet that the child was getting so we had to teach them how to read the report cards. We had to teach them how to, what is, everything is written here in English. What does chimica or what does physica or what does, what's the equivalent in their language? So we have to start doing things differently with those PTO, PTSO, PTA, and getting them back on track to be what they were advocates for parents not fundraisers miss brian gave us her, her point of view which is that that is that that is it's very huge but i think there are some other angles that we can also investigate as well as it relates to those misunderstandings and those gaps within our school campuses because there, there are, in fact, some, some campuses that don't deal with the fundraising, but there are a lot of campuses that, that do. They deal, with, they, they deal with fundraising, 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 because, let's face it, they're not getting funded. It goes back to what Dr. Larry Davis said in the beginning, because of the lack of funding. Where are we putting, where are we putting our money at? Where, what area of town, what location are we putting our money at? Because now these schools have to worry about getting, uh, doing, Blue Jean Friday so that they can buy supplies so that they can pay for a graduation that's befitting of these children coming out of a pandemic and so these are the gaps that we're, we're talking about these are the things that we're missing and uh, someone give me a real life story of you know what was just shared by Ms. By Ms. Bryan and Dr. Davis as, as, as relates to uh, those, those low achieving schools not receiving the proper communication methods uh, that that's beneficial for their school campus, for their school community. It doesn't matter if what state you're in. You can be in California, you can be in Texas, you can be in Florida, you can be in Arizona, you can be in New York. But the the gap still exists. Why are we spending more money on inmates? Why? Why are we now? Let's be candid. We look. We keeping it real life. We keeping it real, 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 real. Uh, if you're scared, go to church. But we're gonna keep it real tonight. Why are we spending more money on people that have been incarcerated than we are on children that need to be educated to keep them from being incarcerated? Because the reality is, we don't live in a democracy. We live in a capitalist system, and in a capitalist system, money rules. Money. Money equals power. Power equals marketplace, market share. Market share equals voices in government. So we live in a capitalist system, not a democracy. And so that's why there's more money in treating than it is in curing. Look at cancer. Look at hospitals. Look at medicine. 
There's more money in treating than curing. Look at the achievement gap. There's more money in talking about it than filling it up. There's more money in all the things to sit and raise your hand and talk about over and over, make the same point year after year than to go and fix it. Because if you fix it, we have to start new conversations and no one's ready to start new conversations. Oh, I'm glad good. you uh, actually said that. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm going to jump right on that with uh, Dr. Larry because the situation is simple. Why do we not solve any problem? Because America as a society has decided that always treating the symptom is the shortest path to just getting to the other side of the street instead of rebuilding the road and fixing the problem from the core problem. No one ever looks at the core problem, and when they do, they shuffle it around. When you bring a new innovation to a corporation or to the government, they may think it's a great idea. They're going to pay you money for it, and they're going to put it on a shelf in a dark room somewhere and lock the door. And the reason is exactly what Larry said. Politicians only have one job, get reelected. Politicians can only get reelected if they can energize their base. Their base only gets energized if they have the same talking points because for the majority of the base, they are not informed. They are not significantly intelligent enough to dive into new conversations. They have to keep recycling and recircling themselves into the old conversations. And this has been a social problem that has been in this country since way before any of us were born. And it's going to be around way after we are all dust. So the bottom line is, how do we solve the problem? Well, we have conversations like we're having tonight. We get up and you say, look, stop treating the symptoms. Stop trying to ban books. Instead, teach people to have conversations about why those books are bad. You do not put someone away like we do in the incarceration system because they have done something wrong and they need to be punished. You put them away because like in Arizona, more than 70% of the, the prisons are privatized, so somebody is making millions upon millions of dollars, and they care more about the dollars than they do about whether that person should be locked up. So the same thing goes to the schools. We are spending thousands and millions of dollars to let parents decide to send their children to private schools, and in Arizona, more than 71% of the people who took uh, advantage of that program were already the affluent who already had their children in private schools and they were just getting reimbursed by their friends in the legislature. This is not a solution. The solution is solve the problem at the school level. When you look at that bill of parents' rights that was passed, they have punishments at the end. They say a, a school that is not in compliance, a school that is having violations, loses funding. What happens when you take funds away from someone who's starving already? They should uprise. They should stand up and say, we cannot take this anymore. The bottom line is, when a school is floundering and the students are drowning because no one cares, they should be funding those schools more. They should be spending more time, more energy, and more focus on getting that school up to standard instead of punishing them because there are some failures that are usually not even tied to the campus. So how about talk about reality? I get really angry when people try to tell me, well, it's the liberals or it's the conservatives. No, it's not. It's the system. The system we live in is flawed and it needs to be torn down and rebuilt with an understanding that every human being has value. Give them a chance to earn and prove that value. Oh my God, that was so good. That was like lightning, lightning, thunder and lightning. <laughs> like, listen, tonight before we started the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, I said the word tonight was going to be the big payback. And buddy, that's what you did. Because when you were talking, I thought about those reparations that are due to so many people. They're due. They're due. I want to know. I want to ask this question. The panel is open still. I'm trying to close it, but it's so good. It's so good. I guess because it's been a while. We haven't been on since May uh, 27. <laughs> but how do we reverse the lack of importance of education in all circles? Because there was a time 
I remember in my lifetime when when an educated person was important. Now it seems like it's no big deal. And in some cases it's it's looked down upon. And we're not just talking in black and brown circles, we're talking in many circles. Now I'm I'm specifying this for the United States though. I'm not talking about different countries like, you know, China and South Korea. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about here in the United States. How can we re- how can we reverse the the image of of education in the United States? And education used to be the way out of poverty. We need to explain, first of all, again, we go back to the parents. Take a train anywhere or take a car anywhere and look under most of your bridges. Who are those people living under those bridges in tent cities? Somewhere a lack of not having an education caused them to be there because they cannot get a job. They cannot support themselves. We need somehow to have parents that are driving along, talking to their children. Is this where you want to be living? Are these the communities that you want to be living in? And remember, those communities can be disbanded, disbanded in an instant. The police can come in and clear those communities out because to the affluent people living in the city, those communities are an eyesore then the only way that you are going to have to get out from under, you have to have an education. And not because I am a Spanish teacher. You have to instill in them that they must be bilingual. Because quite a few jobs now, they will not even interview you for the job the minute you walk in and say you're not bilingual you're not getting that job they're not entertaining you for that interview so we need to have them understanding that they have to be bilingual in Europe The average person speaks three and four languages. Why in the United States we only speak one? We have to have the child educated through his parent. That parent needs to understand that value of an education. Because I go back to what I said earlier, they might not have had happy moments at school. So you need to re-educate them and let them know we cannot go back to what we had because each generation is supposed to be better than the previous generation. So therefore, you have to help us educate your child. Well, Ms. Brian, we are definitely going backwards. We are definitely going backwards as as a country, as a nation. You saw the the court ruling for the affirmative action that was that was displayed. I was I was saddened. I, I was I was really saddened. I felt like that decision did not have enough representation by the people for for it to go forward. But. Uh, 
thank you so much uh, for your comments. Let me go to Buddy Thornton. Buddy Thornton, Puzzles Changes Pro. What you got going on currently, sir? Well, my fifth book is launching. My sixth book is about a third of the way being done. I uh, have been working uh, completely on projects that are going to help disadvantaged populations in Arizona, Oklahoma, and hopefully it'll bleed down into Texas. I partnered up with Randy Blake, one of the other people who's been on your podcast, to uh, do a suicide prevention and a mental health awareness program that is going to be touring the country for about a year and a half. So I've got a lot of things going on, and uh, I didn't mean to get up on my soapbox earlier, but uh, you know this is a passion topic for me, and I have to sometimes rein myself in just a little bit. <laughs> no, no worries, no worries. No, the panel tonight is magical. We we got some heavy hitters tonight. And with that being said, let me go straight to the question that I have for you tonight. Because we talked about we t we've been talking about this bill. We've been talking about how how to clarify to the parents the the rights that they have as it relates to this bill and the uh, I would say juggle or or manage or maintain. So they can make those the right decisions and in informing the parents, right? So with that being said, how should we and we talked about misalignment a lot tonight and you, you kind of spearheaded that. But how should we align parental rights or parent rights with school, those school learn objectives, learning goals, or or to be able to know how to access the necessary resources that parents can pull from the communities. How can we show the parents how to access those resources to help support learning? And we, we're talking some as little as getting giving pizza parties <laughs> or, or school supplies, pencils, notebook paper, you know, local Walmarts, you name it. What's your thoughts? We want to hear it. Talk about it. Well, let's look at it on two levels. Number one, every school campus and every community has to support the local environment. And the local environment has to always trump anything bigger than that because if you can't solve the problems at the local level, you have no business dealing with them above that level. I think parents need to be involved in the schools, whether they have children in them or not. I believe that they have to understand that every time you allow a child to either drop out or leave school with a substandard education, you are increasing the number of people who are going to be on the public dole. You are increasing the cost of maintenance of society. You are creating more barriers to equity and equality, and you're making it impossible for these people to take part in the next generation's ability to survive in our society. If you can do that and you can get the parents involved at the local level, whether it's doing whatever they have to do, supporting some local contests, get some sponsors from some local businesses and say, look, let's have some fun things happen. Let's do some Saturdays in the park and let's raise a little extra money so that we can put some of the quality programs back in the schools and we can show the kids that we care about them on a local level. Who cares what the state's doing? Who cares what the national people are doing? They are not going to come down here and knock on our door and make things right for our kids. And that can happen at the hand and the behest of any adult in the room. It doesn't have to be someone who has a, a child in third grade. It doesn't have to be someone who is not even involved in the school system. Why are they not? Do they not understand that their tax dollars have to go to support all those kids who fail? And at the national level, it's even simpler. Instead of taking things from the top down, we need to go from the bottom up, which I've said repeatedly on this podcast. We need to take every campus that has an upside down uh, dynamic, and we need to throw funding into it, purposeful funding, not just throwing money up against the wall, and we need to work to support the administration and the teachers and the parents because the parents have to be the driving force. But we have to give those children an opportunity to step up and not be the next generation's failures. We have to do it on both levels. The thinking is the, exactly the opposite. 
Get them where the pocketbook is. Tell them if you want our kids to continue to fail and can you keep increasing the amount of people that you have to take care of, which is something you preach against day in and day out at the national level, then why aren't you doing something to reverse it by starting from the bottom up instead of starting from the top down? Quit take things away from the minorities and at least give them a level starting point. It is never the finish line that's the problem, people. It is the starting point. If you have to start 100 feet or 100 yards or 100 miles behind somebody else, how can you ever catch up? Make the starting line fair. It doesn't have to be equal. It doesn't have to be perfect. But it has to be fair in concept so that kids know that they're going to go to a school and that school is going to be there and that somebody outside of that school cares about them and if it starts at the parents' level and at the local level, then the kids will never see the national level. But the national level needs to understand that they need to support the local level to make it all happen. So stop taking money out of the schools, put it back in the schools, and give everybody in the entire stakeholder realm an opportunity to perform at an equitable level. What does that look like? Full transparency. Engage and challenge parents to get up or shut up. Open informed consent. Don't do anything with a child. Don't do anything on a school campus. Don't do anything without just flooding the, the parents with the information. Make them so tired of reading things from the school that they just say, okay, I'm not an educator. You're right. I'm not. I need your help to get my children where I need to get them to get. Stop the backward thinking about violations and noncompliance. And just assume that the only goal is to make things compliant. That's the, that's the whole goal. The only goal. Make everything compliant, no matter what it takes. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Okay, listen. Let me let me recap. Let me recap. We almost out of time. Let me let me recap. Let me recap. So, loving Miss Nina Taylor, she talked about parental involvement with parents. Dr. Larry Davis talked about funding. He, he kept harping on it, the funding, the funding, the funding, the funding, the funding. Ms. Donna Bryan talked about being able to communicate, communicate to the parents, whether whatever language they speak in, being able to communicate to address the misunderstandings, to address those gaps, and using those PTSOs to do that, establishing strong parent unions to do that. And then Buddy Thornton talked about the starting point. He talked about the starting point. I want to open the panel up really quick. Is there a link? My question is this, the panel's open. Is there a link between troubled adolescence and parental involvement? Let me say it again. Is there a link between challenging adolescence and parental involvement. I, I can feel somebody got goosebumps. Who want to talk about it? The panel's open. I do. Generally, if you go ahead, Dr. Davis. That was me. Go ahead. Here in Ohio, uh, here in Ohio, they recently built an additional, we already have one juvenile detention center that's located right in the heart of downtown my city. They just built another one less than a mile away from that one because that one is close to the capacity. Uh, when they started building it, someone had told us, and I, I don't want to say who, but it was kind of an unofficial thing, that they are judging how many kids are going to be able to fill that juvenile prison up based on their third grade test scores. They said they actually take those numbers and they can estimate how many people are going to fill up that juvenile prison in the next five, six years. And they built this thing. They built it. It can hold another 2,000 kids. They're so busy worrying about filling up the juvenile prison instead of giving us more money, period, giving us more, like you said, funding for different materials and things that we need. I personally spent over $700 myself just last year got to be done. I need stuff. I can't get it. I'm spending my own money. 
we can only write off $250 of that. But I spent over $700 myself. Uh, but they're busy spending all this money on the juvenile prison. And they're saying that is based on they can judge how many people are going to fill that up based on the third grade test scores. And I was just devastated when I heard that. And I, my goodness, I said, that's unbelievable. But it looks like they were absolutely true because they're filling it up fast. That is nothing new. Third grade test scores have been used, I would say, for the last 15 years or more to be the measuring stick for those that they're going to have in prison. But before my child get, would get to that third grade, I need my parents involved with that child. Parents are too busy working two, and some are working three jobs. We have to start paying them a little more to be home with that child, to educate that child at home. When the child gets home, to help them with homework. Because again, that's something that we have to teach. How do you help your child with homework? You need to bring them in. I was at a school where every Thursday, the principal, myself, and a counselor, we sat down with the parents to educate them how to answer questions that their children might have. This is a high school how to help them with math homework, how to help them with chemistry homework or whatever kind of homework they had. But this was put out to the community. This was communicated to the parents. It was a constant call, a constant all call, because I myself made some of those all calls to the homes. This is going on every Thursday evening at the school. You, the parent, are invited to come learn about XYZ to help your child. And you start that as early as possible from grade school. You don't need then to worry about the prison system if you have the child being educated from young. So, Sasha Drum, the reason that they use the third grade is because that is the first grade, that is the first time a student takes a state exam across the nation is third grade. If that was test was given, the first time you took it was fourth grade, it would be fourth grade assessment. But when you look at third grade, they've never taken an assessment, and after that assessment is when we start to put together the intervention plan to make that student successful. So that means that the state understands what intervention plans are going to be used and how successful they've been in the past, if that is a determining factor on how many students will be in that prison in 12 years. Think about that. The system is broke. It needs to be torn down, revamped. It is the same system that has been in place since 1865. And that system was not predicated on educating minority children. It was not predicated on educating children from impoverished areas because even a child who came from a farm in a rural area only went to school for six months because they had to be there to work the farm. That system was never put together to educate children with high needs. It was put together to educate children of high influence. I need to add one thing to that, too. Please. Uh, and Larry is absolutely correct. Delna is absolutely correct. Nina is absolutely correct. The problem is we need to change the lane markers. It is well established in the human behavior field that children, own, they acquire deductive and inductive reasoning both by the age of nine, but they don't acquire abstract thinking until they're at least 11 or 12. And when we are assessing them before they have their full mental faculties, it is a failure point that has to be addressed. 
from Vygotsky in the 18, or, uh, from PJ in the 1890s through Vygotsky and all the other developmental theorists, they've all said that when we evaluate children before they're the, the age of 12 or 13, we are short-sheeting them and giving them no opportunity to have a voice in their future. The assessment needs to be shifted from the third grade to at least, if not higher, the sixth or seventh grade. It needs to be moved because the children are just not developmentally ready, no matter what their economic status is. And then when you add the oppression of the substandard living in a lot of these campuses that we have to endure, how do we even give these children a, a, a fair assessment? How do we even achieve that? And I know Dr. Davis and you have been in, involved in that for years and years, decades. And I know you see the unfairness in the system. And so, <clears throat> yes, let's, let's listen to the behavioral theorists and let's change the entire system to give the children a fair assessment. And then we can reevaluate the system with knowledge that is based on reality, not on something that is going to be 200 years old and simply three more decades. Well said, hey, buddy. Well how, said. Do we, how do we give a standardized test to children who are not standardized? They don't have standardized backgrounds. They don't have standardized needs. They don't come from standardized parents. So how do we give and say that this is a standardized test? Who measured that? Because the student who sits down and takes that test realizes that they were not the standard used to make that test. That test was biased. It was not made for them. The, the, I mean, there there are so many different cultures in the United States, and I, I think that's what what you're saying. And 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 in those cultures, and how how tests are generated from from the different cultures, exposure is so necessary. And that really goes that really goes back to funding again. I remember. Do you guys remember this? Let's talk about this for a minute. Do you guys remember this? Back in the day, those those old school administrators would take a day and put the staff on on the school bus and would go through the bus routes because they wanted the staff to know, they wanted the teachers to know, hey, these are where your students live. And when they did this, it gave them a connection. We, as educators, we got we got to, even if the parents don't show up, we still got to connect to the students. I know this is not the topic tonight. We're talking about parents. But I feel like teachers are, are becoming the surrogate parents. I don't know. Am, am I wrong by saying that? We have been in local parents in lieu of the parent, remember? In local parents in lieu of the parent, the teacher is the parent. And so, and so, with that being said, Nina Taylor, uh, I'm coming down your leg. Well, first of all, what have you been up to? Because we are out of time, but what have you been up to? And we're we about to end it up, but we're about to end it out. But what have you been up to lately? <laughs> well, first, I want to thank you for your hospitality and everyone in the city of Dallas for my uh, vacation slash uh, working vacation there a few weeks ago. I had an awesome time. I really love the city and I can't wait to get back there. That's what I've been up to. Uh, my first vacation since 2019. And, and let me tell you, listeners, Nina Taylor, the lovely Miss Nina Taylor, <laughs> can shop. She can shop. Okay. <laughs> Yes, I came there with, with shopping in mind, you know, been somewhere different. I want to buy some different things. They have beautiful shopping there. Like I said, I can't wait to get back. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're going to ask you the last question. And that question is, what is the biggest complaint that you hear from parents? Just regarding this topic, regarding the, the lack of funding, the lack of support, the lack of hearing their voice. What's, what's the largest complaint, the biggest complaint you hear? Well, I've been in public school, which I don't think anyone, I've never heard the word funding. Like, we didn't have money for something because I guess we have everything that we need according to what they say we need. Although a lot of us are spending a lot of our own money on, you know, extra things. 
But I think the biggest complaint, because I'm one of those, like I said, we have to work together, is I'm not a teacher. Um, can't you do this or can't you do that? I say, yeah, I do do that at school. But when he gets home, when she gets home, um, you know, he's going to need some help with this or with that. And that's a complaint that they are having to do too much. Okay. Woo, that hurt. So the parents are saying the biggest complaint you're hearing, the panel's open. We have to go home with this, but the panel's open. The parents are saying that they feel like they, they, they're being asked to do too much as it relates to educating the student. I, and I, well, I, I, I've the, been told straight out, listen, I'm not, I'm not a teacher. You're the teacher. You're the one that gets paid to do this. Um, I don't have time or I have five other kids. Um, you know, it's just a lot. they're saying they don't have time or uh, they don't understand the material or whatever it is. I, you know, it, there's, there's lots of complaints, you know, lots of complaints. I mean, we could go all night on the complaints. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of parents are listening in right now to this podcast and, and they, they will listen in. And so I want to the panel is open for the last time. Let's let's drop some nuggets. Let's drop some wisdom. In the spirit of love and the spirit of hospitality, what would you say to parents that that feel that way or have said that or even thought that that's in their mindset? They have that type of mindset that that's not my responsibility. And y'all be nice, but the panel's open. This, Who wants to go this, first? This is Donna. Let me, uh, let, oh, go ahead, Donna. I have always been the type of teacher. I have also been an administrator who will extend a hand to the parent. I want it to be known that whatever school I'm at in Dallas or whatever school I'm at, whether it's private or public or what kind of school, I am always willing to help that parent who is confused because most of the parents that approach me is always approaching from a language perspective. And they know that it will hold true as long as there's a breath of life in me. I will help them navigate the system to help their child. Thank you for that. Thank you. Who's next? It's very important for people to understand that the statistic before COVID was that parents spent an average of 37 minutes a day quality time with their children. That's a little bit short when there's a 24-hour day. COVID did expand that somewhat because there were a certain number of people who got to spend a lot of more time with their children. And uh, there was both good and bad in that because the numbers of abuse and other negative social traits uh, popped up all over the place. And so was it a benefit to the children? No, I don't think it was. I think 37 minutes is still too short of a time, but I think forcing the parents to be with their children did damage. What we have to do is we have to re-educate the parents to understand that it is their responsibility to deliver a functional adult to society. And until they understand that it's their responsibility, they're going to continue to try to hand it off to anybody they possibly can. Uh, they give them, they, they give kids to coaches. They give kids to teachers. They try to give kids to anybody they can so they can go about their lives. Some of them, yes, fairly. It's so that they can make a living to support those children. But there are millions of parents who do not fit that description and those parents have absolutely no excuse. And the parents who do have to work those extra jobs, we need to give them the hand of God and all of the grace that we possibly can and help them do their job because they love their children and they don't want to leave them in a bad place. But we have to understand that as a society. And I don't think when I listen to the politicians and I listen to the talking heads, I do not believe that is the reality. 
So yes, we need to reteach society how to redefine the word neighbor and how to redefine the word love. Buddy, what you and Delta just said, what you and Delta Bryant just said, got me in my feelings. I know we the podcast is is definitely out of time. We are are over our, our time, but you got me in my feelings because, man, I'm 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 in my feelings because I'm, I'm thinking about what you, what you said, and I, I know that what you just said is the cycle. It's the cycle, it's the generational cycle. Some people go as far as saying it's the generational curse. Anyway, the, the panel's still open. Dr. Davis, I want to hear what you guys say. Nina, I want to hear what you guys say too, but go ahead, please. Nina, go ahead. I'm looking for answers as well as how we can break the generational curse. How can we do that? Um, this whole summer, like I said, I got transferred to another school. I've been getting call after call after call and saying, I want to make sure that my child's in your room because my, you know, the one I just had did so well or whatever. Um, so I'm open to answers. I'm looking for answers too for how I can bring those other ones that are not functioning parents, you know, involved with the school who get angry when I call or who doesn't show up to me, how can I get them, how can I bring them in? You know, what do we have to do? You know, I want to say two things. One is we don't want to judge a parent's love for their child based on their involvement in school. Sometimes that, in, that lack of involvement in school is a lack of knowledge and understanding by their parents. Just like a student who won't participate in class because they don't know, they'd rather act up and not show up instead of you know, letting people know that they don't get it, they don't know, they haven't learned it. Our parents are the same way. Our parents don't want to come to school and embarrass their children. They don't want to come to school and be ignorant to the fact. So they would rather not come. But we don't want to misinterpret that as not loving their child because they do love their children. The other thing is very simple. Uh, <laughs> we're going to get what we get because the schools are set up the way they're set up. Thanos said in, in Endgame, one of the greatest lines ever, he said, as long as we have those who remember what was, there will always be those who are unable to accept change. They will resist. And this is not just parents. This is the school system. These are our school leaders. And these are our kids. And so when you look at that system that won't change, sometimes people are so comfortable with what they know that, again, they refuse to open up that new conversation. Impact of educational leadership podcast.